So, what I found out about tonight's topic is that it's, this is itself an eight-week course that we're going to try to do in an hour. Uh, just information just kept pouring and pouring and pouring, and um, there's a lot here. So, what I'm going to try to do is my faithful best to give a coherent explanation of what I want to accomplish tonight, and unfortunately, I'm going to probably have to stay on the, a little bit on the surface for time's sake, because what we're going to do is this. We're going to try to do is this, and boy, are we going to pray before we do it, but what we're going to try to do is this huge debate over Calvinism and Arminianism, um, we're going to look at the scriptures and we're going to look at both sides of the argument, and then I'm going to present something to you that um, is a third view that's rarely, if ever, heard of from the 16th century, same time as Calvin and Luther and those guys, but rarely ever heard about, I think, because it came from the Catholic side of the Reformation. And so, therefore, the Protestants kind of just shut them out but I think he may be more faithful to the scriptures than Calvin or Arminius. So I'm going to present that as well. The goal tonight is not to make an Arminian a Calvinist or a Calvinist or Arminian or to make anybody a Molinist or anything like that because it's not the goal. Just like the goal is not to change your eschatology or your, your end times view or anything like that. It's to get you thinking about what the scriptures are saying in a way that's not uh, packaged or anything like that. It's a way that you can consider for yourselves. So with that in mind, I just used up four minutes of time I don't have. So let's pray and get going. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we uh, talk about these things, I pray that uh, nothing we say would dishonor you, Lord. We only want to honor you and glorify you. We don't want to be an Arminian or a Calvinist. We want to be a Christian, Lord. So help us to, uh, to sort through your scriptures the way that you presented them in the most faithful way possible, Lord. And let your Holy Spirit continue to enlighten us as we go, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I've been talking about this topic for at least 23 years now. Uh, when I started at a very Calvinistic seminary in the year 2000, which I'm still attending today, 23 years later. Um, you can call me a slow learner, I suppose. But, um, you know, so by default, I was certainly a Calvinist. It's all I learned. It's all I heard. All of my professors were so. And if they're watching now, I hope it doesn't affect future grades. But, but... Um, Again, how, this is how I'm going to start then. I'm going to start by saying, so what is Calvinism? Okay, so Calvinism, obviously named after John Calvin. The uh, five points of Calvinism came after uh, his death, and they were an answer to a guy named Jacobus Arminius, who put forth something called the Five Articles of the Remonstrance. And in those Five Articles of the Remonstrance, he stated things that Calvinists later came by and, and said quite the opposite to them. 
And so you've ha you have your churches, you have your Methodists and Wesleyans and so forth that will embrace what Arminius taught, and then you'll certainly have your Presbyterians and others that'll embrace what Calvin taught. And they are mutually exclusive, so therefore the debate rages on. Now, Jacob, Jacobus Arminius lived from 1559 to 1609, and the five points of the remonstrance, now obviously if you look at five points of the remonstrance, you don't get a nice acronym like you do with TULIP. So it's still called just the five points of the remonstrance. There's no flower or anything that make up an acronym. Because you'll see with Calvinism there certainly is, what's that flower? Tulip. And with Molinism there is. They're, they have roses. So... That's why my wife embraces Molinism. She likes that flower much better. So, so Arminius, um, as it regards human free will, he said this. His, it, well, first of all, he points out the scriptures teach human free will, which simply states that though man is fallen, his will is not inca incapacitated by his sinful nature from being able to freely choose God. So yes, man has fallen, he would say, but not incapacitated to the level where he's not able to choose God. Regarding, the, his second point of the remonstrance was conditional election. Conditional election states that God chose people for election based upon his divine foreknowledge of their free choices. So God has this foreknowledge, which we know is true because Ephesians tells us that and Romans tells us that. But how do we understand his foreknowledge? Well, Arminius taught that his foreknowledge is of people's free choices. He doesn't dictate their free choices. He simply knows what their free choices will be and elects people according to those free choices. His third point was universal atonement. This states that the atoning work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for everyone. Listen to these words now because this will play out. Sufficient for everyone, but efficient only for those who believe. In other words, Christ died for the world, but that his blood will only be effective for those who put their faith in Christ. That's, that's the idea of universal atonement. It doesn't mean everybody goes to heaven. Don't hear that word universal and think that. What he's saying is that Christ did indeed die for the entire world, and then those who put their faith in him that death will be effective for them. Sufficient for all, efficient only for the elect. His fourth point was called resistible grace. And this states that God's offer of grace can be resisted so as to reject the salvific offer that Christ gives us on the cross. And his fifth and final point was uh, that you can fall from grace. The fall from grace states that a person can fall from their previous position of grace and thereby lose their salvation. Now, if you're familiar with the TULIP acronym of Calvinism, you'll realize they are addressing every one of those five points through the TULIP acronym. The T of TULIP stands for total depravity. So where Arminius taught human free will, Calvinism teaches total depravity, which states this is the teaching that human beings since the fall have inherited both the guilt and sin nature of Adam in such a way that absolutely everything about them is affected by sin. This means that their mind, their body, and their will all experience this corruption. 
This does not mean that every person is as sinful as they could possibly be. It just means the entirety of the person is corrupted by sin, making them incapable of ever choosing God. The you of tulip is unconditional election, opposed to Arminius's uh, conditional election. Unconditional election teaches that God chooses certain persons for salvation prior to their conversion and independent of any foreseen faith or good works on the part of the people. The L of TULIP stands for limited atonement. This states that the reconciliation effected between God and man by the sufferings of Christ was effective for some, but not for all mankind. So Jesus didn't die for the world. He died for the elect only. The I of TULIP is for irresistible grace. This is a teaching that the Holy Spirit is able when he so chooses to overcome all human resistance and so cause his gracious work to be utterly effective and ultimately irresistible. And the P of TULIP stands for perseverance of the saints. This is the teaching that asserts that once a person is truly born of God and regenerated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they will continue in doing good works and believing in God until the end of their life. So you can see the contrast between the Arminians' human free will and the Calvinist total depravity, between the Arminians' conditional election and the Calvinist unconditional election, between the Arminians' universal atonement and the Calvinist limited atonement, between the Arminians' resistible grace and the Calvinist irresistible grace, and from the Arminians' Uh, your ability to fall from grace to the Calvinist perseverance of the saints that you will persevere once saved, always saved uh, of Calvinism. So now, as we look at, the next thing we're going to do is look at some key verses. Now I wrote out 10 key verses. There's about a million of them. We're going to do 10 at tops because I don't know how long this will take. But what I'm going to do is bring up the most commonly used verses in the argument, and I'm going to tell you how the Calvinists interpret it and how the Arminians interpret it. And after that, I'm going to introduce the, this idea of Molinism to you, which um, is not much heard of at all in, in, in this argument. First, I'm going to start with John chapter 6. Verse 37 through 45, which says, and, and, and how this played out, to be transparent with you, is these are mostly Calvinist verses, and they sound very Calvinistic. And then we'll see what does the Arminian say about it, and then later look at if there's a, a, a third option on these. So John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, we read this. All that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up 
at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 6, 37 through 45. Now, how do the two camps interpret this verse? Well, in verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Calvinists argue that this passage teaches irresistible grace. The individual cannot refuse God's choice. Therefore, all those given to Christ will respond. Armenians reply that those given to me in verse 37 are the same people as those who believe in him in verse 40. In other words, when God foresees that some will believe, he gives them to Christ. In verse 45, it says, those who have heard and learned from the Father are the ones who come to me. So the Arminius says they have first heard from the Father and learned from the Father, and then they're given to Christ. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. The Calvinist holds that these passages teach total depravity, unconditional election, and also imply limited atonement and double predestination. Now, what's double predestination? Well, most Calvinists that I speak with don't like to acknowledge double predestination, but to me it's inescapable, logically. If some are predestined to heaven, that means the rest are predestined to hell. There's no getting around it. There's, there's no possibility for the non-elect to go to heaven. They are going to hell, according to Calvinists. So it is a double predestination. So, it says, no one can come to me unless, well, the Calvinist says that's because they're totally depraved. And then it says, it has been granted him from the Father, or the Father draws him, meaning they were unconditionally elected. Unconditional in this case, because the cause of this is the Father and not the individual. The Calvinist continues to say this represents limited atonement and double predestination, because it is impossible to come to him without election. Therefore, those whom the Father has not drawn are naturally destined for judgment. And therefore, those for whom Christ, they, they are those whom Christ did not die for. Now, the Arminian agrees that these passages teach total depravity. However, they argue that the Father draws all men to Christ, as it says in John 12, 32 and 16, 8, they further hold that to assign the cause exclusively to the Father ignores verses 29, 35, 40, and 47. Those verses say, in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, that's an interesting verse. I was speaking with a very good friend of mine who may very well be watching right now. Um, we, we, I wanted to run this teaching by him a few days ago. 
So I said, let's have a, actually he was meeting somebody else for lunch and I sat down with him. I said, hey, until your buddy comes, let me just sit with you type of thing. Two and a half hours later, as his buddy is sitting listening to us the whole time, we finally finished our conversation. And we only did finish it two and a half hours later because we were actually at work getting paid and realized we should probably do work since we're here at work getting paid. So, but our two and a half hour conversation, one of the things he said to me was, what does it mean this is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent? That seems pretty obvious. Well, he says to me, that means work, I'm sorry, that means faith or belief is a work. Jesus says the work for you to do is to believe. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, so that nobody can boast. So if faith is a work, then it can't be how we got saved. It has to be something God did before we believed. Yet, what Jesus is saying here, certainly in my eyes, is the apostles who were raised on 613 laws and 10 commandments that they had to follow and that damned them if they didn't because they were called to be perfect and holy as God is perfect and holy. They were raised on a system of works. Now Jesus comes and is clearly changing everything because why else would they ask the question, what is the work that we're to do? They already know the work that they're to do. They were raised on this stuff. Yet they know something's different. So they say, what is the work for us to do? And Jesus says, the work for you to do is to believe. Now that's not consistent with the Old Testament law. So what is Jesus saying here? We know that Jesus fulfilled all of the law. We know that he completed the works. He said it is finished. All of the works that, that were given to man for their righteousness, which they utterly fail in, are completed and finished in Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, when he says the work for you to do is to believe, it's his way of saying there is no work to do. I've done it all. But you have to believe this. You have to believe in it. So is belief a work? Now, I've always had a hard time categorizing belief as a work. Because I imagine with something as glorious as heaven is presented as an offer. And I receive that. For me to go, look what I did. You should be so proud of me. I'm going to heaven is ridiculous. All it's doing is pointing to him who did everything for me. And all I did was say, I don't care. I don't believe you. That's all I did. I don't think that's categorized as a work. I think Jesus here is saying, I did all of the work. So all you have to do is believe. He's not saying belief is a work. And therefore, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says you're not saved by works. Therefore, you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by God's choosing you beforehand, putting faith in you, and therefore um, if, uh, faith wouldn't be a work that way. I just think it's wrong to put faith in that category of work. You can completely disagree with that, and that's why we're not going to end this debate tonight, okay? But I don't think that faith is a work. All right, now, and I think Jesus is saying that in John six twenty nine. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So the Arminians point to that saying, the ones that come to him are the ones who believe. He who believes are the ones that will never hunger and never thirst. 
So within the context of John 6, you get these very strong Calvinistic verses and these very strong Arminian verses of human freedom, which is why the debate rages on. Now, John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, okay, very much pro-Calvin. You did not choose me, but I chose you. What does the Arminian say about that? The Arminian says, he's speaking to the 12. And he's saying to the 12, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That you didn't come to me and say, hey, Jesus, I chose to follow you. That Jesus came and chose them himself. That this isn't the universal call of all the elect. This is simply saying, Jesus is explaining to his apostles that, um, that he chose these 12. And that he calls them friends and, and so forth like that. So they're saying the context here is the 12. It's not a teaching on universal uh, salvation of mankind. All right. Acts 13.48. Acts 13.48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. All right. Sounds like a point for John Calvin all the way. Correct? I mean, how do we get around that if we wanted to get around that? Well, Here's what the Armenians say. The Greek word there had been appointed as tetagmoi, tetagmoi, and the idea of tetagmoi could mean to be appointed or to set yourself. It depends on what form of the verb Luke intends by uh, tetagmoi here. It could either be in the passive voice which in the passive voice, you would translate it as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. But the same exact form is also used in the middle voice. And if it's in the middle voice, it would be translated as many as set themselves to eternal life believed or inclined themselves toward eternal life believed. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, the same exact verb and the same exact form appears... And it's translated there in the middle voice to show you the difference. 1 Corinthians 16, 15 says, says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And that's the same verb. They devoted themselves is the same verb as tektagmonoi that we get in Acts 13. So it could just as easily be translated that as many as set themselves to eternal life believed. So it just depends on the choice of the translator. Are they going to put it in the passive voice or the middle voice? But the word itself allows for both translations. So we have that. All right. Ooh, it's getting late early. Okay. All right, so we're going to go towards we're going to go towards some heavy hitters. We'll start in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. 
Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 are the uh, really go-to sections uh, for the Calvinist. And for good reason. So let's look at Ephesians 1. And we'll see what the Arminian does with it. And then I'm going to throw you the curveball and introduce Molinism and have you consider uh, his claims on all of this. Now, first 14 verses of Ephesians 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now that just straightened it all out, didn't it? All right. So let's walk through this a bit. Where the issue starts arising is as early as verse 4. And just for the context, we'll start in 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So let's look at verse 4. This says, just as he chose us in him. So the idea here of this election is that we are elect in Christ. So, if we look at this idea, we go to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, and we see God the Father speaking about his son Jesus Christ, who in these servant sections of Isaiah is referring to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, as the servant of the Lord. That's why your Bible should have servant capitalized in Isaiah. And, it, and in Isaiah 42, 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. So there we get Jesus Christ as an elect one, as the elect one, as the singular elect one. So Paul seems to be referring to this idea of Jesus Christ as the elect one, that if we are in Jesus Christ, we now become elect. Okay, We are elect in him. The promises go to him. 
we inherit promises. We're not directly given promises. We inherit promises through our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the elect one. So this says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. So the next thing to notice then is that the choosing of us in Jesus Christ, salvation is not the topic. The topic is sanctification, that we're to be holy and blameless before Christ in love. So there, the context of us being chosen, first of all, is that we're chosen in the election of Christ. Secondly, that in this being elect in Christ, that the, the, um, the purpose of that is to be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5 now says, having predestined us to adoption as sons. So some could see that a salvation, as a Calvinist certainly does, you're, you're, adopted to, you're predestined to salvation, but predestined us to adoptions as sons, as it mentions inheritance in verse 14, that's what the son does. The son inherits what's the father's. So this predestinating is towards this adoption, not from non-sonship to sonship, but from um, but adopted as sons to an inheritance by Jesus Christ to himself. So in other words, what are these words getting at? The Calvinist says it's getting at your salvation. You were chosen for salvation in him before the foundation of the world. And in that salvation, you'll be holy and blameless. Okay, yet salvation is, is not mentioned in there. What's mentioned in there is sanctification. Just like in Romans 8, which we haven't gotten to yet, yet, it says you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. It doesn't say you were, that's sanctification, the conforming of you to Jesus Christ. Not to your salvation, but to the, you being like Jesus. In other words, he will finish the good work that he started in you. You started not much like Jesus, you're going to end up much more like Jesus. And then upon your glorification, you're going to be way more like Jesus. Okay, so there's a process you're going through. That's why I say there's no such thing as carnal Christianity because there's a predestined course of you becoming like Christ. And if you're not becoming like Christ, you need to question if you're really saved or not. Okay? So when we see these words foreknowledge and predestined, now we're going to get to that word foreknowledge. That's a key for understanding a lot because it's in the text, especially Romans 8, we have to look at. But we're not there yet. Now, now it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is all done according to the good pleasure of God's will. So it makes me ask this. What exactly is the good pleasure of God's will? Well, we're told what the good pleasure of God's will is. We are told that it's his good pleasure. It says, um, Jesus will say this about desire. Okay, so we talk about the good pleasure of God. What does God want? What brings him this pleasure about about our standing with him. Well, Jesus will lament over Jerusalem. Now, this is the verse that made me sit and start questioning my Calvinism. Because just like with my end times view, which rattled some feathers out there, my feathers got really rattled when I see Jesus lament over Jerusalem. When Jesus says, I longed, I, have a, I had a desire. I wanted something. He says, I long to gather you 
as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He says, but you were not willing. We see the Jews overcoming the will of Jesus Christ. He wanted something from them that he did not get. And now he laments that he didn't get it. And he says the, 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 the reason why he's not getting his will is because they were not willing. Now that made me think, how in the world could he have predestined them to damnation from before the beginning of the world and then get upset with them not being gathered together and being emotional over it and saying, it's your fault. If you were willing, you'd be saved right now, but you were not willing, and so you're not. So that one th was, a, was a real curveball for me. Now, so the, the desire of Jesus Christ there was that the Jews would come under his wing. What else do we see? 2 Peter 3.9. God desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. So now, it's what it says. He desires nobody to perish, but all to come to repentance. So certainly, in Calvinism, it's he desires that his elect won't perish, but come to repentance. Well, of course, they're going to come to repentance, right? They have no choice but to come to repentance. So... To me, the language gets funny here in Calvinism. And I know I'm ruffling feathers. I can feel it on the camera right now. Okay? But I'm just telling you my journey. Your journey is your journey. This is my understanding of the scriptures. And this is where, where uh, what I'm seeing. The Bible says God desires, uh, the, the Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. So if mercy's the triumph, then when we're told that people are damned for the glory of God in judgment, okay, it shows that he's a perfect judge, and so he's glorified in the judgment of the damned, then we shouldn't be told that mercy triumphs over judgment because the win would be in their repenting. There'd be no triumph in judgment if mercy triumphs over judgment, so why not grant them mercy and win? There's more... Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. So why are they diminishing the joy of heaven by not allowing people to repent when it brings them more joy? These are the questions that I've had along the way that have never been satisfactorily answered. Ezekiel 33. I know you guys are saying, when's he going to get to Ezekiel 33? Ezekiel 33 says this. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine away in them, how can we then live? What should the answer be in Calvinism? I'm going to predestine you. Right? You're already predestined. You don't even have to, to worry about this. But God says this, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God is almost begging here. Turn, turn from your wicked ways. Why should you die? 
turn. Now imagine if they're incapable of that. What kind of God would say that? These are my questions, okay? Remember my prayer at the beginning. Listen, I just want to be right. Why? Because I'm egotistical? No, because the alternative is being wrong. And that's not better, that's worse, right? So I want to be right about this, okay? So when I think of the desires of God, the will of God, his pleasure, it's always towards the gathering of his people, the saving of his people, they're turning from wicked ways, and God even saying to his own people, why would you die when all you have to do is repent? So when I think Calvinistically, I can't make sense. Now, there's very strong Calvinistic verses, and that's what we're going through. But when we talk about, it says, Ephesians 1, according to his good pleasure, what's the good pleasure of the Lord that he's working towards? It certainly seems the, the majority of texts of the Bible say it's salvation over judgment. All right. Back to Ephesians 1. Wow, are we getting nowhere fast? According to my notes, we're like on the first paragraph still of three pages. Um, Ephesians 1, back there again. And then I really got to get to the third option here. Uh, Ephesians 1, picking up in verse... Let's pick up in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's the predestined verse again. So of course, with predestined, there goes the doctrine of predestination, which gives us the TULIP acronym. But what is this saying? In him we have also obtained an inheritance. I pointed out to you that that was one of the purposes of being elect as sons. Sons receive inheritances. Here's the obtaining of that inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. So again, what does it mean? What's the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of will? What's his purpose? Well, when we look at verses that go towards purpose, this was literally 6.50 tonight. I was doing this, sitting at the table out there with John saying, you're on in 10 minutes type of thing. So um, what I came up with in that moment was Philippians 2.12 and 13, which says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. There you see the good pleasure of God again. And what is it? It's that you bear fruit. It's that your salvation is fruitful. It's that um, God is gonna work in you, the believer, both to want to do for his good pleasure and to equip you to do for his good pleasure. Those are purposes of God and salvation, that there's work to do in this world and he sends us out to do that work, Okay. Not works unto salvation, but according to James 2, according to Ephesians 2, uh, these are works that always accompany true salvation. They always accompany it. Okay, that's why uh, James 2, which some people mistake for works-based salvation chapter, um, he says that Abraham was justified by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Well, he's using the word justified there as he was verified. It justified his true faith. How do I know that? Because it says, it refers back to before the Abraham and Isaac story where 
Abraham's told that he'll have kids as numerous as the stars in the sky, and it says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. There's his righteousness unto salvation already with him there. Then he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, and James is saying that proved outwardly that he had the inward condition of salvation. It justified the claim that he was credited with righteousness, because now there's an outward act that we can see. Okay? All right. So now, we went through that, I think, last week. All right. And finally, let's look at verse 13 of this. In him you also trusted when? After you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. We finally got the word salvation, didn't we? And what does it say about salvation here? It says you trusted after you heard the word of truth, which gave you your salvation. Okay? So first came the word of truth to salvation, and then you trusted in him. Okay? So... And then in Romans 10, it, it, it talks about the fact that you can't um, believe unless you hear. And you can't hear unless you're preached to. You can't be preached to unless you're sent. Okay? So now you think, is that predestined for the foundation of the world? Or is that asking people to believe and they need preachers to believe and they need to hear the word to believe and so forth? And that's in Romans 10. So... They are also sealed with the Holy Spirit here. When? It says, in whom also in you, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So there it talks about belief, and then the Holy Spirit seals you. Okay? All right. That's Romans 1. Now, Romans 9 through 11 we were going to go through, but I spent 45 minutes just on this, this part of this. So, um... Romans 9 through 11, one thing to keep in mind as you wrestle with those verses is this. Now, my Bible makes this very easy to see because it has these subtitles throughout 9 through 11, and every one of those subtitles starts with the word Israel. You have to realize God is showing us through Romans 9 through 11 the position of Israel. Sometimes it mentions Gentiles, and you've got to look at that. But look at the subtitles of Romans 9 through 11. As you consider those verses, the context is this. First five verses is Israel's rejection of Christ. Six through 13 is Israel's rejection of God's purposes. There's nothing irresistible here. It's rejection, rejection. 14 starts Israel's rejection and God's justice in that rejection. And then 30 to the end is the present condition of Israel. Chapter 10 is Israel needs the gospel. Starting at verse 14 to chapter 10, it's Israel rejects the gospel. And then chapter 11 starts Israel's rejection of the gospel is not complete. It's not total. They're not totally going to be rejected. And then in 11, well, in, in 11, 11, it starts again. Israel's rejection is not final. There's going to be salvation again in Israel. So... Uh, that's important to keep in context as you wrestle through. That is my advice to you as we do that. Now, so we've had the five points of the remonstrance, human free will, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace. You can fall from that resistible grace. Compare that to the TULIP acronym of Calvinism. That's total depravity. It's unconditional election. It's limited atonement. It's irresistible grace, and it's the perseverance of the saints. And now I introduce to you a man named Louis de Molina from the same time period in the 16th century. And 
The thing I want to bring up before I introduce Molinism is this. When we look at the knowledge of God, God's knowledge, his foreknowledge, his knowing things beforehand, we all agree that God is omniscient. What does that mean? What does everything mean? Past, present, future, right? He knows everything, okay? Now, let's not underestimate his knowing everything. Let's let knowing everything mean knowing everything for a moment here. So, what I want to introduce to you is this. When we look at God's knowledge, we usually see it in two categories. Something we call his necessary knowledge. God's necessary knowledge are of those things that have to be so. In other words, a circle has to be round. As soon as it has corners, it's no longer a circle, right? That's necessary knowledge because there are no square circles, correct? When a bachelor gets married, he's no longer a bachelor. It's necessary knowledge that there's no married bachelors, correct? Those are contradictory terms that cannot represent a truth. Once we hit the contradiction, something's wrong, something's untrue. That's what a contradiction is, correct? So necessary knowledge is necessary or the knowledge of things that are absolutely necessary and have to be. So when people say, can God lift a rock that's so heavy? Can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? That's a contradiction in terms. God does not live in contradiction. He cannot contradict himself. Those are not reasonable applications. God cannot make square circles. He cannot make rocks that he can't lift. Those are violations of logic type of thing. Okay. Now, that's necessary knowledge then we also recognize his free knowledge. God's free knowledge is him doing what he wants to do. He wanted to create the world, and he did. He wanted to make mankind in his image, and he did. And all the things that God chooses to do that he could have otherwise chosen not to do, he's doing out of his free knowledge. Okay? So you have necessary knowledge, and you have free knowledge. Now, there's something called God's middle knowledge. God's middle knowledge is a knowledge of things that could have been that aren't, but they could have been. In other words, we as free creatures make decisions. So the question at stake is this. God knows those decisions. Do we all agree on that? God knows our decisions. The question is, does his knowledge of our decisions cause our decisions to happen or are our decisions free, and he simply happens to know beforehand what, as free creatures, we will decide. The idea of God's middle knowledge is the latter. He is able to have us be free and freely decide things without causing our decisions, yet he still knows the outcome of our decisions. And with that idea of God's middle knowledge, there are verses that support this. This is not just some thing that's not biblically supported. The problem is, I'm so out of order in my notes, I've got to scroll and see where these verses are. But I will find them. Um, right here. 1 Samuel 23, 8 through 14. 1 Samuel 23, 8 through 14. God's middle knowledge. What does that look like here? Remember, God's middle knowledge... Is a knowledge of what we call counterfactuals. Counterfactuals are facts that never came to be but could have if we decided differently about things than those things that never came to be would have come to be. 
It's a good thing this is the last class because you guys would never come back after this. I can sense that now. All right. 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 8, we read this. We'll start in 7 since it's the beginning of a paragraph. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. So what happened there? Hey, God, if I go to this town, are they going to turn me over to Saul? Yep. Then I'm not going to go. Okay? And he doesn't go. But guess what? If he did go, God knows the outcome. That event never happened, yet God is giving him the details of what would happen if you did go, correct? Middle knowledge. Ezekiel 3, starting in verse 4. This middle knowledge will be important for the introduction of Molinism. Okay. Ezekiel 3, starting in verse 4. Then God said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent, them, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. So what does God say there? If I had sent them, if I had sent you to them, they would have listened, but they're not going to listen because they're impotent and hard-hearted, okay? So in other words, did I get all through the verses there? Yeah, okay. So if I sent them, he said, which he didn't, then says they will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. All right, let's get to Jesus' words. Matthew 11, Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So if I would have done the miracles that I did in you, if I would have done it in Sodom, they would have repented and they would be fine even to this day. So God knows that if he would have done these miracles what would have happened, but he didn't do those miracles, so it didn't happen. But he knows what would have happened if he would have done it. 
uh, even though he didn't do it. So he knows outcomes that never come to be. It's part of being omniscient. Matthew 17, starting in 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customer taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Now, let's list it as a Molinistic verse because if he doesn't go, Jesus knows that uh, if, he, if, he, if he would have gone, it would have been there. Um, if he does go, he'll find it there. Now, I, I personally didn't want to include that one, and I forgot to take it out because I could see it both ways. I don't think it's overly convincing on that one. So do with that one what you may. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. It says this. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God and a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if the rulers of this age knew the wisdom of God, then they wouldn't have crucified Christ. But they did crucify Christ. But God knows if they knew something, then they wouldn't have made the decision to crucify Christ. Something that never came to be, yet God knows if this ingredient were put into reality, then this outcome would have happened, but yet that outcome never happened, yet God knows exactly what would have happened. Does that present middle knowledge to you sufficiently? Okay, Many other verses, but we'll just stick with that for now. All right, now, why... Understanding God's middle knowledge is helpful because now I'm trusting you guys to follow this. One of the problems when we talk about foreknowledge is this. If God foreknows events and activities and behaviors and if he first decrees things to happen, and then after the decree, he therefore obviously knows what's going to happen because he decreed it. Then what do we say about evil acts? It's hard to get around God decreeing evil that way, being the author of evil. But with God's middle knowledge, we can observe that God first knows before he decrees. Um, Romans 8, those who God foreknew sets the role of predestination. It's exactly what it starts with, which is foreknowledge. Now, in Calvinism, we cannot say as in Calvinism that God's foreknow he foresees people choosing him and therefore saves them. The Calvinist says that's too much, too much credit going to the believer there. Okay? But what this idea of middle knowledge solves is this. 
that God first foreknows, because that's the very first thing Paul says he does, those whom God foreknew. He first foreknows what our free decisions will be. So now let's go back before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, God knows how many things? Everything means what? Everything. Now, even in the Greek, it means everything. Now, so God therefore created a world in which the maximum amount of salvations would happen based on creating free creatures. Because he knows all of our free decisions and before he decrees the world into existence, this very world where Adam and Eve fall, we're all fallen in Adam, and now from the very first time God killed an animal and put that covering on Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness and their shame, substitutionary atonement, correct? That animal died in their place. Now, before he decrees that, he knows that this is the best possible world to create based on his desire of people coming to repentance and, and being saved, which we talked about his desire and his will and his purpose. So with his desire, will, and purpose revealed to us through scripture, he creates the world that best achieves those things, and when it doesn't achieve those things, there's a lamenting of Christ over that. There's a pleading with God for the wicked to change from their ways and so forth. So his foreknowledge comes before his decree. Therefore, he's not the author of evil. He simply sees the evil, and this is uh, part of creating a free creature. And if we ask ourselves, was it better for God to create or not create as the creature, we would say it's better that he created. And if we say, is it better that God creates with free will or no free will, as free will creatures and not robots, we say it's better with freedom, then this is that world, isn't it? He created it and he created it with freedom. Now, what does he do since he has desires of repentance? He has desires of turning from wickedness. He has desires for all men to be saved. What does he, what does he do? He creates this very world. This is that world, which achieves that the best. Now, it's hard to imagine because we watch the news, right? And we see all the evil. That's what freedom looks like, isn't it? Okay, that's what freedom looks like. That's what sin looks like. Sin, every single time you sin, I don't care if it's a little white lie or what it is, you've created cloudiness in your vision of God. You don't see him as clearly. You don't sense him as well. It's what sin does, right? And that's why innocence is such an underestimated word. Because in innocence, you can experience more of the fullness of God than you can in guilt. Um, that's why Adam in their pure innocence had a full expression of God given to them. And then when they lost that innocence, there was a departure that happened. And so innocence is a key to experiencing fullness. And sin is always a compromise on that experience of fullness. Um, so I promised you roses and roses you will get. And then we'll uh, take questions at that point. So when you call something the five points of the remonstrance, which is from who? Arminius. You don't get good acronyms when you call things five points of the remonstrance, right? So there's no real acronym for his five points. But then when you get 
total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. You get a nice acronym, TULIP. Well, in Molinism, uh, they come up with the acronym ROSES to explain their summary beliefs. And it goes like this. The R of ROSES stands for radical depravity opposed to total depravity. Radical depravity means man's nature is radically depraved from the fall, but it's not totally depraved. It means we're not rendered completely incapable of responding to God. But mind, soul, and body all experience corruption, but we're not completely um, shut off from being able to respond to, to, to God. And they see that in, in Adam's communication to God after the fall. The O of roses is for overcoming grace, which is in opposition to their irresistible grace. So radical depravity obviously is an answer to their total depravity. Overcoming grace, the O, is opposed to their irresistible grace, which they say God's grace overcomes man's radical depravity. So God's grace, when given to someone who puts their faith and trust in him, will overcome the radicalness of their depravity. The first S of roses stands for sovereign election. And this is opposed to their unconditional election. Sovereign election says God's sovereign election of individuals predetermined by his exercise of middle knowledge to know who would respond to him in faith. This is instead of unconditional election where God elects individuals independent of their libertarian free will. The E of roses is for eternal life which states that regenerate believers will not fall away from a state of justification. So there's, there's some agreement there with the um, perseverance of the saints. They'll say once you're regenerated, that you will not fall away from that state of justification. And then the final S of roses stands for singular redemption. And this is opposed to the limited atonement of Calvinism's tulip. Singular redemption is a modified view of limited atonement where it says Christ's redemption is sufficient for all but applicable only to the elect. So it's sufficient for everybody. God died for, Christ died for the world. And anybody who puts their faith in him will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So they believe everybody can participate in salvation but certainly not everybody will participate in, in salvation. But it's not because Christ didn't die for them. It's because they uh, resisted that grace that was offered to them. So that's the roses of Molinism. And um, it's 8.05. So we'll stop there. All right, let's pray and uh, see what comes of that. Father, we come to you in Christ's name, Lord. And we, and we just thank you for your scriptures, Lord. And we... Pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance over all of it, Lord. So um, just help us to see clearly is our prayer and to be faithful to you, Lord, and not to honor uh, Jacob Arminius or to John Calvin or, or Louis de Molina, Lord, but to honor Jesus in all that we say and do. And we pray that even though we use these guys' names throughout the last hour, uh, it would be Christ, Lord, that uh, we would be uh, adoring and following. And we pray this in his name. Amen.